Republicans are just one seat away from gaining control of the House, where it remains unclear who will be the next speaker. It's Tuesday, November 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy wants to be the next speaker, and he's urging his party to work with him. Also this hour, Arizona voters have chosen Democrat Katie Hobbs as their next governor over Trump-backed Republican Carrie Lake. And what one writer has learned from visiting sites memorializing the Holocaust. Plus, members of indigenous nations gather on the banks of the Mystic River and revive a tradition to help build community. I feel like I, my ancestors are with me. Like We go into a spiritual place. There, there are moments where we're all kind of on a trance working on it together. Forecast says clouds today, highs in the 40s. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden co-hosted an event focusing on global infrastructure investment today at the G20 Summit of World Leaders. It comes as the U.N. General Assembly prepares to issue a strong message condemning Russia's war with Ukraine. But despite differing views from G20 members on how best to deal with Russia's aggression towards Ukraine, President Biden told reporters, I'm convinced we're going to come out of this crisis we've been through in the pandemic and other things stronger than we went in. Every time we engage, we get better. Meanwhile, President von der Leyen of the European Commission spoke about the challenges that remain to raising hundreds of billions of dollars to tackle global infrastructure needs over the next five years. We live in a truly volatile global economy with obviously changing climate. And on top, in addition, we see that Russia's war is rubbing salt in the wound of the economic recovery of COVID-19. Russia has cut most of Europe's supply of natural gas in its war on Ukraine. With House Republicans on the cusp of winning a slim majority, NPR's Giles Snyder tells us Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is taking his first step toward becoming House Speaker today. Heading into the party leadership election, Kevin McCarthy will only need a simple majority to win the nomination for Speaker. But McCarthy is facing pressure from his right flank, which sank his ambitions in 2015. Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs, a former chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, has announced a challenge to McCarthy, signaling that McCarthy may have a harder time finding the 218 votes he'll need on the House floor in January when the new Congress convenes. McCarthy has reportedly pledged not to seek Democratic votes for Speaker, meaning he'll need support from nearly all House Republicans. Giles Snyder, NPR News. Homeland Security Secretary... Alejandro Mayorkas will testify later this morning on Capitol Hill. NPR's Joe Rose tells us the hearing may be a preview of what Mayorkas would face under a Republican majority in the House of Representatives. The House Homeland Security Committee is expected to have tough questions for Secretary Mayorkas about the southern border after a year of record migrant apprehensions. Some House Republicans have been threatening for months to impeach the secretary in the next Congress over his handling of the border. Mayorkas may also be asked about the resignation of Chris Magnus, the former head of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, stepped down on Saturday after less than a year on the job under what he described as pressure from Secretary Mayorkas. The hearing is the first of three appearances on Capitol Hill for Mayorkas this week as the lame duck session gets underway. Joel Rose, NPR News. Global stocks are trading mostly higher at this hour after Wall Street gave back some of last week's gains yesterday. London and Frankfurt opened higher. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Charlie Baker went on national television to talk about the midterm elections, and he said the continued influence of former President Trump is harming the Republican Party. Baker told CNN that both Democrats and Republicans are frustrated by political extremism and voters want candidates who are going to reach across the aisle. I think in the midterms, one of the big lessons that the Republican Party nationally needs to take away from it is uh, is voters want collaborative elected officials. They don't want extremes. Baker says millions of voters are leaving both the Republican and Democratic parties every year and becoming independents. Here in Massachusetts, more than 60 percent of the electorate is now unenrolled. The city of Salem is teaming up with the state and Salem State University to provide temporary housing for families experiencing homelessness. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more. By the end of the month, a small number of families will be housed in vacant former residential units on Salem State's South Campus. Officials ultimately hope to house 50 to 60 families. The site will be available to current Massachusetts residents and new arrivals. People will be able to stay in the transitional housing until March of 2024, just before the university plans to sell off the property. North Shore-based nonprofit Center Board will manage the site and make sure residents have food and their other necessities met. The state will pick up the costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The newest bivalent vaccine from Cambridge-based Moderna increases antibody levels against COVID more so than the original vaccine. That's according to a new study from Moderna. The findings show that the shot protects better against newer variant strains like Omicron. A study from Pfizer with its vaccine showed similar results. A Brookfield man is scheduled to appear in court today on charges that he sold untraceable guns. Federal officials say 31-year-old Mickey Simmons sold homemade firearms to an FBI informant. Simmons was already not allowed to own any guns because of a prior conviction. The time is six minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's online master's in clinical mental health counseling. Scholarships available. Apply now for January. WilliamJames.edu. In sports, Celtics rallied in the fourth quarter to beat the Oklahoma City Thunder. The 126-122 win was the team's seventh straight victory. They're on the road in Atlanta tomorrow. In our weather forecast, cloudy today with temperatures in the 40s. Tonight, some rain with lows in the 30s. Tomorrow, rain in the morning, clouds in the afternoon, highs near 50 degrees. Sunshine on Thursday with temperatures in the 40s. It is 33 degrees right now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Universal Pictures with She Said, starring Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan as a New York Times journalist whose investigation helped ignite a movement. Based on actual events, only in theaters November 18th, rated R. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. While votes are still being counted in the midterm elections, Congress is back this week for what is shaping up to be a busy lame duck session. After Democrats clinch control of the Senate, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pleaded for both parties to work together. Let us proceed in the next two years by putting people first and getting things done Even if we have to compromise, we may not accomplish everything we want, but if we can get real things done, that will measure 
how good a Congress we can be. In the House, Republicans are one win away from taking the majority and a passing of the gavel from Speaker Nancy Pelosi to a Republican leader. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales has more. Uh, Claudia, so even now with the Senate race in Georgia in a runoff, Democrats are moving forward on their agenda. What's next for them? Right. Last night, they took the next steps to get legislation to codify marriage equality on the Senate floor. Next, this is an issue Democrats have wanted to take up since before the midterms. It came up as a top issue after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and ushered in new questions about other protections that could be under threat. Schumer also pleaded for Republicans to work with Democrats. This is Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell noted this election was another reminder that the country remains closely divided and we could have divided government again once these House elections are settled. This leaves a long to-do list in the coming weeks, especially as legislating will become a harder task with the House poised to come under Republican control. All right, so speaking of the House, where do things stand there? Right. As you mentioned, Republicans are just one race away from taking control in the House. So House Democrats are getting ready for a transition here to relinquish control of the chamber and making plans for playing defense in the House come next year. But Republicans are projected to gain control of this chamber by a small margin. And this upends all sorts of plans for Republicans who were expecting a red wave. And they're set to hold their internal leadership elections today. So what does it mean for House Republicans? Yes, so Republican leader Kevin McCarthy was the presumptive speaker if the GOP saw a red wave, but without it, there's a much more turbulent road ahead. He tried to downplay those worries with reporters at the Capitol last night. It's going to be a tight majority, so everyone's going to have to work together. We'll we'll be successful as a team, and we'll get defeated as an individual if we don't all work together. Yes, he's emphasizing there that if they don't work well together, they will be defeated. So McCarthy only needs to get a majority of his conference to vote for him behind closed doors today, but he's going to need a majority on the House floor next year. And it's unclear if he can get that. There are Republican House members considering challenging him here. For example, members of the House Freedom Caucus have made clear they're not ready to co-sign a McCarthy speakership. It's a lame duck session through the rest of the year. What are we looking at now? Right. It's going to be busy, perhaps chaotic, because if Democrats do indeed lose the House next year, as is expected, that means they're going to be on notice to get critical legislation through that may not be possible uh, come next year. So it's quite the sprint to the end of the year for both chambers as they head into this new Congress. That includes wrapping up a government funding package this year, a defense bill, reforming the Electoral Count Act, and also the work of the House Select January 6th Committee. Now, January 6th committee is supposed to sunset by the end of the year. What's left for the panel to do and and actually what becomes of their work come next year? Right. One major priority is they need to sort through final witness interviews. And former President Trump, who was subpoenaed, is on that list, but he's not expected to cooperate. He could run out the clock with the new lawsuit that he filed against the panel. Now, the committee was already set to a sunset by December 31. So they've made plans to issue a comprehensive report in this final month that includes a deeper look at their interviews with more than a thousand witnesses and other findings of evidence over the past year. That said, the GOP is slated to take that majority next year in the House so they could try and turn the tables on Democrats and investigate the panel's work. That's NPR's Claudia Grisales. Thanks a lot. Thank you much. With Republicans on the verge of taking the House majority, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy faces an early test of party loyalty in his bid to become the next speaker. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis has more insights into McCarthy's past and the challenges he faces now. 
As he likes to tell it, Kevin McCarthy's path into politics started on a gamble in the California lottery when he was a young kid living in Bakersfield. I scratched off my first ticket, all three, and the most money you could win there was $5,000. I scratch off three of them and all three say 5000 And I have never played the game before, so I go back up to the checker. I said, you know, as I read this, did I win? I was one of the first winners in California. That lucky break led him to invest that money, use it to open up a deli named Kevin O's, and then sell that business to help pay his way through college. There he started working for his then-representative, Republican Bill Thomas. In 2002, he ran and won a seat in the California State Assembly, where he was quickly elected party leader. Here he is speaking to a class of high school seniors in 2005. I never like to refer to myself as a minority leader. I refer to myself as the Republican leader. I'm, I'm proud of my party. When Thomas announced he would retire in 2006, McCarthy succeeded his former boss in Congress. In his campaign since, McCarthy has only ever faced token opposition for the seat representing his hometown, and he's never won with less than 62 percent of the vote. He entered Congress a traditional small government conservative, typical of the George W. Bush era. His first speech on the House floor was in opposition to a 2007 Democratic bill to raise the minimum wage. I came to Congress to work to increase opportunity for all Americans, not to harm workers and small businesses. Often described as sunny and gregarious with an obsession with campaign politics, McCarthy was quickly dubbed a young rising star in the party, along with then-Congressman Eric Cantor of Virginia and Paul Ryan of Wisconsin. Together, the trio were the minority party's self-proclaimed young guns, who wrote a 2010 book, went on a book tour, and produced a glossy Hollywood-style ad to promote their agenda and themselves. Joined by common-sense conservative candidates from across the country, together they are ready to make history. Together, they are the Young Guns. McCarthy also did the work. He's credited with helping recruit dozens of outsider candidates to run in the historic 2010 Tea Party wave. That delivered a Republican majority and with it made him majority whip, right below Cantor, who became majority leader. But with that majority came a more right-wing, confrontational style of Republican lawmaker. And the party's young guns were also now the establishment. Cantor was forced out in 2014 when he was defeated in his Republican primary. In the aftermath, McCarthy became majority leader. Asked at the time if he was conservative enough to help lead the party, he told reporters this. They elected a guy that's only grown up to the grassroots. They elected a guy to spend his time going around recruiting many of these individuals to get the majority. Look, I've always had to struggle for whatever we wanted to overcome. House Republicans, still stymied by a Democrat in the White House, continued to take out their inability to get much of anything done on their own leadership. Conservatives led by then-Congressman Mark Meadows of North Carolina led a months-long campaign that ultimately forced Speaker John Boehner to resign in the fall of 2015. McCarthy quickly announced a bid to succeed him, but he withdrew from that race when it became clear he did not have the support of the most conservative wing in the party. If we are going to unite and be strong, we need a new face to help do that. That remaining young gun, Paul Ryan, reluctantly stepped into the role, and McCarthy remained the speaker's deputy. Donald Trump's stunning 2016 presidential victory once again realigned the political interests of Republican lawmakers. Tea Party-style opposition to spending fell way to loyalty tests to the new leader of the party. While Ryan and Trump were often at odds over tweets and the agenda, McCarthy worked his way into Trump's good graces. 
He once bragged to the Washington Post that after noticing Trump's favorite starburst flavors were the red and pink ones, he made a point to deliver a jar of them to the president as a gift. Trump often called him my Kevin in private and publicly backed McCarthy to lead House Republicans after they lost the majority in 2018. We have a great man and he's going to be hopefully a great speaker of the House. McCarthy and Trump's alliance remained strong during Trump's first impeachment for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The day Trump was acquitted by the Senate, McCarthy tweeted out a video of himself tearing up the articles of impeachment. Acquitted for life. After Trump lost the 2020 election to Joe Biden and then fueled the January 6th attack on the Capitol, McCarthy in the immediate aftermath appeared ready to sever ties with Trump. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. But when it became clear that the party base and most Republican lawmakers remained loyal to Trump, McCarthy pivoted. 22 days after the attack, he was photographed with Trump at his Mar-a-Lago estate for a private meeting to plot winning back the House in 2022. McCarthy worked to win over Trump loyalists in the House, voted against Trump's second impeachment for incitement of insurrection, and ousted Wyoming Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney from party leadership for her criticism of Trump. Cheney has never missed an opportunity to criticize McCarthy since, as she did just weeks ago on NBC. When Minority Leader McCarthy has had the opportunity to do the right thing or do something that serves his own political purpose, he always chooses to serve his own political purpose. Now facing a razor-thin majority, McCarthy's political future relies on keeping House Republicans almost completely unified behind him. Already a handful of Trump-aligned conservatives say they will not support him for speaker. This is Florida Congressman Matt Gates on his podcast last Thursday. I have spoken with many Republicans in Congress and many who will join our ranks soon. None are actually inspired by Kevin McCarthy. In an interview with the podcast Control, former Speaker Ryan said McCarthy, who has now survived years of internal party dramas, should not be underestimated. He's playing the inside game to win the vote for Speaker. He knows exactly how to do that. He was better at that than me. And um, I wouldn't count him out ever because he really knows how members think, how they operate, and how to play a vote counting game. Or maybe he'll need to get lucky once again. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, what one writer has learned from visiting sites memorializing the Holocaust. It's 19 minutes past 7. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. 
Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. In our forecast, clouds today with temperatures in the 40s. Tonight, some rain, lows going down into the 30s. Tomorrow, rain in the morning, clouds in the afternoon, highs around 50 degrees, and sunshine on Thursday with temperatures in the 40s. It's 33 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from PBS with Taken Hostage, American Experience tells the story of the Iran hostage crisis through eyewitness accounts. Continues tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Layla Falden. And I'm Rachel Martin. Writer Clint Smith thinks about public memory a lot. For his latest book, the New York Times bestseller, How the Word is Passed, Smith wrote about places around the U.S. that try to tell the story of chattel slavery. Some monuments, memorials, cemeteries, prisons. But after the book was published, he says he found himself talking more and more about Germany, a place where public memorials of the Holocaust are everywhere a country that has put time and money into commemorating the shame of its recent past. So how has it changed Germany's collective memory? Smith answers that question in the current cover story for The Atlantic. Visitors to Berlin know about the big Holocaust memorial near the Brandenburg Gate, but Clint Smith described to me the small memorials embedded in everyday life. The Stolperstein are these small brass stones that are placed in the middle of these cobblestone sidewalks as you're walking down the street. And they were created by a German artist named Gunter Demnig in 1996. And one of the things that's so powerful about it is you'll be walking down the street and you'll see one in front of the home. And you look down and it has a person's name, their birthday, the day they were deported, the day they were killed and where they were killed. And what you come to understand is that what this stone is communicating is the people who lived in the homes that the stone is placed in front of, who were taken from their homes and sent to their deaths by the Nazis, um, both people uh, who were Jewish and other groups of people who were persecuted by the Nazis. And I remember the first time I came across one, it kind of catches you off guard. You see it, the sort of gleam of the sun sort of shines off of it. And you go look and you look at it, and then you look up at the house 
that it's sitting in front of in this this profound sense of intimacy there is a constant set of reminders throughout germany of what was done there you spoke with one jewish woman in berlin who said that germany was able to make memorializing the holocaust an important part of national life because jewish people are more of and these are her words jewish people are more of a historical abstraction than an actual people can you explain that it's this idea that in Germany, Jewish people represent less than a quarter of a percent of the population. That is very different than what it means to be Black in America, for example. You know, there are over 40 million mm -hmm. Black people in this country. We represent a massive social, political, and cultural block. And so one of the things that some of the Jewish folks in Germany would tell me is that it's much easier for Germany to create memorials and monuments to the past, to the Holocaust of what was done. Because as was said, Jewishness is almost more of a historical abstraction than it is an actual people. Most Germans don't know Jewish people, don't have relationships with Jewish people. In the United States, it's a little bit different mm. because if you're going to build a monument or memorial to chattel slavery uh, or to Jim Crow apartheid, you can't simply lay a wreath down and say, we're so sorry this happened. You have to account for the material cost of what was done. There are mm -hmm. tens of millions of people here who are the descendants of those who this harm and violence over the course of generations was enacted on, who are experiencing the residue of that harm. And so you can't simply build a monument and say sorry without also engaging in like a real intervention of resources. And that is something people are much less willing to do. Because it's about the now. You can't just look back and say, like you were saying, there are present conversations that would need to happen. There are wrongs that need to be righted today. It's not just about looking to the past. Absolutely. And one of the things that that same woman told me when we had our conversation is she said, we were standing in front of her former home and there were stumbling stones in front of it. And she had a moment where mm -hmm. she looked at me and she knew I was from New Orleans. She knew that I was the descendant of enslaved people in America. And she said, can you imagine what it would be like if they had Stolperstein in your hometown? And I kind of thought about it for a moment. I was looking at these brass stones in the ground and imagining what it would be like if these were in New Orleans, which was at one point the largest, busiest slave market in the country. And then she said to me, she was mm. like, the whole city would be covered in stones. And that was such a striking moment for me because I was like, that's absolutely true. Did your time in Germany and these conversations and this research, did it expand or contract your idea of what public memorials can do in a society. I think that memorials and monuments and museums, they are not a panacea, right? The existence of Stolperstein, the existence of the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, the existence of all of these different memorials that have been created in Germany, it does not make Germany immune to, to hate. It does not make Germany immune to those who would attempt to deny the past. I mean, Germany is in a moment where it's dealing with its own sort of rise of far right-wing extremism and ahistorical neo-fascists, folks who try to deny that the Holocaust ever happened or limit, talk about that, that its significance is overblown. And so it's a place that it's not fully protected from that simply because it puts memorials down. But I think there is still something to be said for how ubiquitous and, and omnipresent they are in that space and how for so many millions of people, they wake up and are encountering on large scales and on tiny, intimate, singular scales, 
reminders of what was done and what was done not that long ago, right? Like there are people who are still alive today who survived the Holocaust. I mean, this, this didn't end up in the piece, but you know, after I came back from Germany, I spent time with a Holocaust survivor who lives only about 10 minutes away from me in Maryland and just sitting with her and hearing these stories of what she experienced. You're reminded that this history we tell ourselves was a long time ago. I mean, it just wasn't that long ago at all. And I think we're in a really interesting moment now where we only have a few more years of people who lived through the Holocaust still being with us and people who survived the Holocaust still being alive. And I think it's really important to make sure that we are collecting those stories, that we're hearing those stories, that we're recognizing how important and unique it is to have these people with us, these people who survived the most horrific genocide in modern history, and to recognize that those stories give us a similar sense of intimacy to that history, give us a different sense of proximity to that history in ways that we shouldn't take for granted. Clint Smith, his new cover story for The Atlantic is called Monuments to the Unthinkable. Thanks so much for talking with me, Clint. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Arizona governor's race is decided with Democrat Katie Hobbs narrowly beating Trump-backed Republican Carrie Lake. And this note now, your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen to the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the news of the day. It's 7.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Republicans need to win one of 13 remaining races to retake control of the House in the next Congress. The GOP has won 217 House seats thus far in the midterm elections. Democrats are sounding upbeat about retaining control of the Senate come January. Here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer speaking on the Senate floor for the first time since Election Day. The American people stepped back from the precipice and chose progress and getting things done. In Arizona, Democrat Katie Hobbs will be the state's next governor. Her race was called last night as she defeated Republican Carrie Lake, who was endorsed by former President Donald Trump. The suspect in Sunday night's deadly shooting at the University of Virginia is facing charges that include second-degree murder. 22-year-old Christopher Darnell Jones was apprehended in suburban Richmond hours after the shooting that left three students dead and two others wounded. Authorities say the three killed played on UVA's football team. South Wallace also attends UVA, where students were told to shelter in place after the gunfire broke out. I think that the school itself did a good job of um, kind of getting getting students kind of on alert and uh, kind of taking the offensive, you know, like if you see something, say something. 
This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Parts of central and western Massachusetts can expect their first dose of winter tonight. Some of the state will see up to two inches of snow starting tonight into tomorrow morning. Kyle Peterson is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. If people are planning to be out on the roads tonight, just uh, take it slow, especially if get any freezing rain, that'll make the roads uh, very slippery and it could be dangerous. Peterson says there won't be any snow in the Boston area for now. Massachusetts will get $9 million from a multi-state settlement with Google over some of its privacy practices. Attorneys general in 40 states argued that Google was tracking users' location histories even when those users had asked the company not to do so. Connecticut Attorney General William Tong led the investigation. The problem is, for a long time, Google has collected this information even though it represented to all of us that we could turn that off. In total, the settlement's worth almost $400 million. The company says it changed its tracking policies years ago. The Boston Day Shelter Women's Lunch Place is celebrating its 40th anniversary today. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker has more on how its services and its challenges have changed. When Women's Lunch Place opened in 1982 in the basement of a Newbury Street church, it served just eight lunches a few times a week. It now serves more than 1,800 women a year, with programs including art therapy, job placement, and housing searches. Advocacy manager Minerva Bolduck says clients have to wait up to three years for an apartment, three times longer than when she started 13 years ago. It's unbelievable the amount of time they have to wait. And we try all over Massachusetts. We don't do one housing application. We do 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Women's Lunch Place says women have more trauma and face greater risk when unhoused than men. So more women-centered services are needed. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. The time is 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, icaboston.org. In sports, Celtics are coming off their seventh win in a row. They defeated the Oklahoma City Thunder at the Garden last night. Final score, 126-122. to 122. Jason Tatum scored 27 points. Jalen Brown added 26. Celtics are off tonight. They'll play in Atlanta tomorrow. In our weather forecast, cloudy today, temperatures in the 40s. Tonight, some rain, maybe snow in some areas, temperatures going down into the 30s tonight. Tomorrow looks like lingering rain in the morning, partly cloudy skies in the afternoon, highs near 50 degrees, 33 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Netflix presenting Is That Black Enough For You? From writer and director Elvis Mitchell comes a love letter to black cinema of the 70s celebrating the films and talent that changed the game. Now streaming on Netflix. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. In Arizona, the governor's race has been called for Democrat Katie Hobbs over Carrie Lake. 
At last count, Hobbs led Lake by less than a percentage point, about 20,000 votes. It was a closely watched race that pitted the Democrat Hobbs, Arizona Secretary of State, against Lake, who was one of the most high-profile election deniers in this election cycle and was backed by former President Donald Trump. Ben Giles of member station KJZZ in Phoenix has been following the race. Ben, let's talk about the significance of Katie Hobbs' victory, or maybe a better way of asking is about Carrie Lake's loss. Right. Lake is one of three Trump candidates in Arizona who embraced the notion that the election was stolen. It includes Kerry Lake, Blake Masters, the Senate candidate in Arizona, as well as Mark Fincham, the Secretary of State candidate who would have overseen future elections. All three election deniers, all three now have lost, according to AP race calls. And a fourth, Abraham Hamaday, is trailing in the race for attorney general, though that's still too close to call. So it looks like a significant rebuke in Arizona of a Trump slate of candidates and specifically a slate of candidates who ran and campaigned on the notion that the 2020 election was stolen. And if you look back nationally a little bit, Democrats have now flipped three governor seats this election cycle. In addition to Arizona, they've also won in Maryland and Massachusetts, while Republicans did flip the Nevada governor's seat. You know, I've, I watched a, a lot of interviews uh, with Carrie Lake on TV, and every time she was asked if she would accept the results of the election, she would not really answer. So how has she responded to these results? Well, she didn't make any statements last night except for a tweet in which her words, she called the results BS. So I don't think we're going to get a concession from Carrie Lake anytime soon. She has been responding since Election Day, accusing Maricopa County election officials of quote, slow rolling the ballot counts, accusing them of something nefarious. There's nothing nefarious about the way the county or election officials across the state have been counting results. This is about the same pace as they always do things. Democrats have won several key statewide races, as we mentioned, including U.S. Senator and Secretary of State. Uh, What are people in Arizona saying about Democrats outperforming expectations? You know, I keep thinking back to something a Democratic consultant told me uh, a few weeks before the election. She said, it's not the number of people you can get to come scream at your rally that matters. It's the number of people you can get out to vote. And Democrats seem to have a winning formula in getting out the vote and convincing voters in Arizona that this slate of Trump-backed election-denying candidates was dangerous for the state. And now you've seen Democrats flip seats in major statewide races in Arizona for the first time. Uh, A governor is going to be Democratic for the first time in Arizona since 2009. Now, even though the race uh, has been called, there are still ballots being counted. What's the likelihood of a recount? Well, a recount could be automatic here in Arizona if the margin of victory for Hobbs is less than half a percentage points. Unlike other states, candidates cannot request a recount. All right, Ben Giles of member station KJZZ. Ben, thanks. Thank you. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a surprise visit yesterday to the recently liberated city of Kherson in the south of the country. Russian troops evacuated from the city Friday. NPR's Jason Bobian was in Kherson as crowds welcomed their president. Zelensky! 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 
President Zelensky was given a hero's welcome in the center of Kherson, a city that just two months ago, Moscow claimed it was annexing into the Russian Federation. And until just last week, Kherson was the only regional capital Russia controlled. Zelensky didn't address the crowd directly, but his presence underscored Ukraine's determination to claw back every bit of territory that Russia has seized since its February 24th invasion. Much of the civilian population of Kherson fled during the eight and a half months of occupation, or they were evacuated by Moscow's forces in the days and weeks prior to the Russian retreat. But for the people who stayed, and particularly the people who came out yesterday to the center of town, there's jubilation that Kherson is now back under Ukrainian control. Natalia Makanko said she didn't know that Zelensky was coming. She'd just been out walking her dog Marshmallow and saw the crowd. Uh, we don't have uh, electricity, we don't have water. Uh, it is very hot, but we feel free, and it's just, it's incredible. The central square of Kherson, that was named Liberty Square even before the war, yesterday felt like a carnival. People sang Ukrainian folk songs. Boys draped in yellow and blue flags asked Ukrainian soldiers for their autographs. Kherson was seized quickly in the first days of the war and abandoned by Russia almost as fast. The lack of heavy fighting for control of the city has left the center of Kherson pretty much unscathed. This is in contrast to other cities that suffered major damage from shelling and airstrikes. Ukraine's Deputy Minister of Defense, Hanna Malyar, arrived with Zelensky and posed with residents for selfies. Malyar stresses that Ukraine is up against Moscow's much larger military, and she says the counteroffensive in this region would not have been possible without weapons donated by the U.S. and other Western nations. Uh, Ukrainian success is, dep depends on two uh, boys, first our uh, strength and uh, our willing to fight, ability to fight, and uh, weapons which we receive from our partners. Despite the festive atmosphere in the center of Kherson over the last few days, many residents say the last eight months in the city were also scary. The occupying Russian forces cut off cell phone service and internet communication to Ukraine. Moscow tried to introduce the ruble as the local currency, although that didn't appear to have been successful. Several people we talked to yesterday teared up as they talked about living in the fear that they or their loved ones might disappear into Russian detention. Part of the joy in the city now is that that fear has been lifted. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kherson, Ukraine. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, members of Indigenous nations gather on the banks of the Mystic River to help build community and revive an ancient tradition. In our weather forecast, cloudy today with temperatures in the 40s. Tonight, some rain, possibly snow in some areas tonight. Temperatures going down into the 30s. Tomorrow, lingering pre- uh, precipitation in the morning, partly cloudy skies in the afternoon. And highs tomorrow getting up around 50 degrees. It's 33 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. In business news, the number of women in leadership positions at Massachusetts public companies is the largest ever. That's according to a report from the Boston Club. It shows nearly 22% of executive officer level positions are headed by women, and that's up from almost 14% in 2018. The town of Wellesley is getting a new life sciences lab. Beacon Capital Partners tells the Boston Business Journal that the firm is converting one of its buildings in the town into lab space. It would be Wellesley's first commercial lab. Massachusetts is partnering with other New England states to hold a virtual job fair. The event aims to connect job seekers with high-demand industries in the area. The New England Regional Job Fair takes place today and tomorrow from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., and it's virtual. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. At the start of Native American Heritage Month this November, indigenous peoples of various nations gathered on the banks of the Mystic River in Charlestown. The Massachusetts tribe at Ponkapog, in collaboration with the Nipmuc and others, came to build community, strengthen tribal bonds, and learn a new yet ancient skill. They used fire to build a traditional dugout canoe called a machoon. WBUR's Christella Guerra spoke with some of the teachers and students involved. Akuni, Natasawas, Minikisu Masmata. Hello, my name's Andre Strong Bearheart from the Nipmuc tribe. And uh, just out here burning a traditional machoon with our sister tribe, the Massachusetts. Strong Bearheart watches the fire closely as the wind picks up and feeds the flame. Every few minutes, someone with a metal scraper shapes the wood as it smolders, gradually hollowing out the heart of this tree. Heat emanates from the center. Yeah, the tree will teach you a lot of lessons about patience and uh, acceptance, happiness, suffering, a lot of all these things bundled together. Strong Bearheart learned this craft from his teachers, 
Darius Coombs, and Anawan Whedon of the Mashpee Wampanoag. This knowledge has been passed down through generations. It's what we did for thousands of years here, 10, 12,000 years. We uh, stepped into each other's spaces to create uh, alliances. And also, you know, it's the reason that we survived here for so long. The smoke dances above their heads as it rises. The group works together, using water to control the burn in shifts. They watch and scrape from dawn to dusk and overnight. Too much fire and it's a total loss. Not enough and it won't take shape. Their campsite is spare. A few tents, chairs, strong coffee. Joining them throughout the week are other local tribes, such as the Aquina, Chappaquiddick, and Mashpee Wampanoag. Usaweyu, Daka Marparrilla, Daka Boriken Taino. Buen dia. Good morning. My name is Marparrilla, and I am Taino from Boriken. Parrilla is one of five apprentices. She says there's constant communication with the wood, fire, and elements as they interact. It becomes meditative. This method of both burning is similar to what Taino use in Boriken, also known as Puerto Rico, a tradition she hopes to bring back. I feel like I, my ancestors are with me. Like We go into a spiritual place. There, there are moments where we're all kind of on a trance working on it together. From the campsite, they see Deer Island, a burial ground where Native Americans died after being moved there by settlers during King Philip's War. It's now used for waste treatment. Local residents pass, curious and surprised to see the people of this land on this land at all. Next to the machine is a fake, decapitated head on a pike, red paint streaming down its face. It says in the memorial of all the Northeastern woodland indigenous folks who were murdered and beheaded by the English for public display. Until 2004, there was still a law from 1675 in the books banning Native Americans from walking unaccompanied within city limits. Thomas Green of the Massachusetts at Ponkapog says the way to reckon with genocide and erasure is through projects like these. So we want our sister tribes to be here and, and doing this project with us. It helps to solidify um, the bonds that our ancestors once had. So it, and you know, the colonists came here and they divided that unity and we're trying to reclaim it or some semblance. The machine is finished within a day or so, a gift from the Nipmuc to the Massachusetts. They paddled it on the Mystic River. It glides smoothly along. At the nose, they carved a turtle, a symbol of the land they share. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us later this morning for Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering joins me in the studio right now to tell us what's coming up on today's program. Good morning. Good morning. I have been enjoying listening to Deborah Becker on WBUR this morning. <laughs> well, thank you. Great to start my day with you. So from the newsroom, uh, mm-hmm. one of our regular segments where we bring a WBUR reporter in to talk about their work, we're going to speak with Amelia Mason today, uh, who works with our arts and culture team. And she's been looking at um, artists' buildings that are under threat or being priced out because, um, you know, developers buy them and want to do other things with them and raise rates. Um, And some really interesting new approaches, collectives, nonprofits that are finding ways to try to buy those buildings, keep artists in the space, keep artists in greater Boston in an affordable way. Hmm, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, And then, Deb, I don't know if you follow sports, but we have some pretty strong Bruins and Celtics. (laughs) So we're going to talk about that, too. (laughs) 
Go okay. teams. Thanks, Tiziana. Thanks, Radio Steph. Boston, 11 and 3 p.m. today here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Elon Musk borrowed billions to buy Twitter. Now he just needs to figure out how to pay all that back. There's just one problem. The marketers are Twitter's customers. Tesla has historically never done any marketing. He has no idea how advertising works. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's coming up on Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Like so much else, education news has been consistently downbeat, with many students still reeling from the academic and emotional toll of the pandemic. Today, though, a bit of hope and joy from a classroom in Connecticut, where a bunch of first graders are playing with puppets, moving their bodies, and learning how to do something called shake out the yuck. Look at your faces, how that changed. How are you feeling now that you just shook it? Happy. Yeah, I see lots of happy faces, absolutely. There, alongside all those happy faces, was NPR's Corey Turner with the rest of the story. Leticia DeNoya stands at the front of her classroom at Natchaug Elementary in Wyndham, Connecticut. Do you remember last week we worked with our puppets, right? Yeah. And we learned a new strategy. The first graders sit crisscross applesauce on the reading rug. Do you remember what that strategy was called? Riley. Belly breathing. Belly breathing. For when you've got really heavy feelings, like... Angry and sad. Angry and sad. Or you could probably feel sad because someone took something away from you. That's definitely a reason. For many of these kids, it was the pandemic that took something away. Most at Natchog come from working-class families and qualify for free or reduced-price meals. Some lost loved ones to COVID. Many saw parents lose work. In thousands of schools across the country last year, that kind of stress followed kids back to class and led to all kinds of disruptive behavior. But with help, kids can be incredibly resilient. And that is what this new program, Feel Your Best Self, is all about. So today, we are going to learn how to change our feelings when you might be feeling heavy and we want to make ourselves feel lighter. The kids get quiet. They love this part when they get to watch a video with puppets. Last time it was about belly breathing, and today's strategy sounds even more fun. It's called Shake Out the Yuck. Can you say that? Shake Out the Yuck. In the video, a whimsical blue puppet with tufts of purple hair named CJ starts to panic before performing in a school talent show. Now everyone's grown ups are here watching. Oh, uh oh. One little boy cringes and winces for poor CJ. He was feeling nervous because he there's a lot of people and he didn't want to go on stage. Then CJ's friend, Mina, in red glasses and a hoodie, 
tries to help. She remembers a basketball game and having to take a free throw with everyone watching. I felt like I couldn't catch my breath. It was kind of scary. That happens to you too? Well, what do you do? I shake out the yuck. At this point, Denoya's first graders hang on every word. When I'm nervous or scared or both, I imagine those feelings are stuck all over me. And then I shake them off like this. Denoya invites the kids to shake it out with Mina. Feel Your Best Self has 12 short videos in all, each built around a simple strategy with a kid-friendly name, like Shake Out the Yuck, Float Your Boat, and Chillax in My Head. Some are about understanding and managing your own feelings, others about helping friends, and all of them hinge on the magic of puppetry. The puppets took hours and hours to create. Emily Wicks is co-interim director at the Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry at the University of Connecticut. During the pandemic, Wicks sent out emails to researchers at UConn's NEAG School of Education, fishing for collaborators. Her pitch, you want to help kids right now? And we have puppets. One of those emails went to Sandy Chifulius, a UConn professor and a trained school psychologist. It was very small scale, right? It was like this little idea about how could we maybe partner together and, and try something out. Chifulius was worried about all that extra stress on kids and that schools wouldn't be able to help them. Teachers were stressed. Systems were stressed. Nobody had time to do professional learning, to do something complex. I mean, it was that that's just ridiculous to think that we could have. First grade teacher Leticia Denoya has seen it firsthand. Kids returned from the pandemic with really rusty social and emotional skills. Sharing and learning how to take turns and learning how to deal with disappointment. And there's just things that they missed out on with not having that socialization. And so we need to find a place to teach it at school, too. So Chifulius and Wicks at UConn cooked up Feel Your Best Self. The idea was these scripted puppet videos would be easy and free for schools to use, even if they don't have a trained mental health specialist on hand, which many don't, or they have one spread across hundreds and hundreds of kids. For this pilot program, the first graders also got to make their own puppets. Say good morning to your puppet. Good morning. The Feel Your Best Self team has given every child a brightly colored sock and all kinds of add-ons like bug eyes, sticker stars, and yarn hair. I've been in a lot of classrooms as an education reporter, but I cannot remember seeing kids more joyful. With the puppets on their hands, a shy girl becomes bold, while a boy, normally bold, becomes gentle and loving. My puppet's feeling calm. It's feeling calm. I love it. Uh, Riley, how are you feeling? Happy. One little girl, Nevea, raises her hand. When I went here, I was sad and nervous sometimes. Sad and nervous? Because it turns out today was Nevea's first day at this school. And are you feeling a little bit better now? Yes. Awesome. Back at her desk, Nevea tells me she's already made two friends, and one of them, Galilea, helps her with her new puppet. Then you just stick it on, take this thingy off, and then you could make a beard if you want. This kind of harmony is showing up school-wide. 
When I visited in late October, teachers here had yet to write up even one serious behavior problem. Now, the Feel Your Best Self team are adamant. They do not see their work as a pandemic fix-all. What it is, they say, is one little thing that schools can do to help kids manage in a world that even to grown-ups can sometimes feel so unmanageable. Corey Turner, NPR News, Wyndham, Connecticut. Feel your best self every single day, every day, every day. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solution simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden is meeting with world leaders about soaring food and energy prices sparked by Russia's war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, November 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, after meeting with China's president at the G20 summit, President Biden spoke about U.S.-China relations. We're going to compete vigorously, but I'm not looking for conflict. I'm looking to manage this competition responsibly. Also this hour, we talk about population trends after reports show that for the first time, the number of people on Earth reached 8 billion. And Brazil's incoming president is pledging a zero-tolerance policy on deforestation in the Amazon, but some climate scientists say it's too late. Forecast says clouds today, maybe some snow tonight, highs today in the 40s. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. Congress is back this week on Capitol Hill for a busy lame duck session. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports House Republicans will vote behind closed doors on their choice for speaker today. House Republicans are one win away from taking the majority and taking the gavel from Speaker Nancy Pelosi. House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy told reporters he's optimistic he'll take on the role next. It's going to be a tight majority. So everyone's going to have to work together. McCarthy added that his conference will be successful as a team, but defeated as individuals if they don't work well together. While a likely majority of his conference supports him to become speaker for closed-door leadership elections, McCarthy does not have a majority of the House chamber needed in a floor vote set for next year. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Washington. The United Nations says the global population has officially reached 8 billion people today. It's celebrating this as a milestone for human longevity, but population growth is uneven across the globe, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Mumbai. 
Populations are declining in some Western developed countries. The most growth, according to the UN, is happening in just eight countries, half of which are in sub-Saharan Africa. The UN credits advances in public health and nutrition. India's growth is slowing, but it's still expected to surpass China as the world's most populous country sometime next year. Meanwhile, experts in climate science and population both say it's not the size of the population that consumes more energy and creates more carbon emissions, but rather it's consumption or overconsumption. Ukraine has welcomed a United Nations resolution today that says Russia should be held accountable for its invasion of its neighbor. As NPR's Greg Myrie tells us, this is an in line, rather, with one of Ukraine's demands for ending the war. In his nightly video address, President Volodymyr Zelensky said the call for Russia to pay reparations is, quote, now part of the international legal reality. Russian attacks have caused massive damage throughout Ukraine. The United Nations General Assembly voted 94 to 14 in favor of holding Russia accountable with 73 abstentions. The resolution is non-binding, but it does carry political significance and is likely to be addressed in any future negotiations on ending the war. Russia's ambassador to the UN rejected the measure. He said the West was trying to create a veneer of legitimacy to seize Russian assets. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. After hosting President Biden and other world leaders in his country's capital last week, Cambodia's prime minister is COVID-19. He's leaving the group of 20 meetings in Bali. The prime minister says he feels normal as returning home. The White House says President Biden tested negative this morning and is not considered a close contact. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Records indicate that 17 MBTA employees were suspended over the past four years for not paying attention to their work. The Boston Herald requested those records, and the paper says most of the suspended workers were bus drivers. The newspaper reports that some of the drivers were found sleeping on the job. The suspensions ranged from a few days to more than two months. In a recent federal report, inspector cited staffing shortages as a key factor in safety issues at the T. T officials say they are working to hire more drivers and operators. The developer behind the state's largest planned offshore wind farm wants to rework its contract with utility companies. The parent company of the Commonwealth Wind Project, Avangrid, says inflation and other issues are making the project more expensive. The company argues those new conditions mean the contract contract is no longer viable. It wants to raise rates and push back the project's timeline. Utility providers have already told state officials they're not interested in renegotiating the deal. Massachusetts gambling regulators are postponing a vote on a proposed horse racing track in western Massachusetts. As Alden Bourne reports, some residents of Hardwick filed a petition opposing the project. A developer and a horse breeder want to build a racetrack there. They estimate there could be thousands of spectators on weekends. Robert Page is a member of Hardwick Concerned Citizens. The notion of having that many cars, that many horse trailers, that many patrons, that part of it is a real concern of ours. The Hardwick Board of Selectmen signed off on the project last week. But the Massachusetts Gaming Commission held off on voting on whether to approve it after learning of a petition signed by more than 400 residents. The town selectmen will now have to meet to reconsider their votes. If they don't withdraw their approval, the project has to be okayed by Hardwick residents within 45 days, or it can't move forward. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. 
The Boston Firefighters Union is now waiting for word on its appeal of canceled civil service exams. The union filed the appeal with the State Civil Service Commission yesterday. Union President Sam Dillon says the promotional exams were scheduled for this weekend, but the State Human Resources Division, or HRD, canceled them last week. Our position is that HRD's decision to cancel these promotional exams at the last minute um, was unjust and unfair to Boston firefighters. The state canceled the exams after a judge ruled that a similar test for the police department disadvantaged applicants of color. The Firefighters Union says the police department ruling should not apply to them. The time is seven minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. In sports, Celtics are celebrating a late victory at the Garden last night. The team rallied in the fourth quarter to beat the Oklahoma City Thunder by just four points. The final was 126 to 122. It's the Celtics' seventh consecutive victory. They're on the road in Atlanta tomorrow. In our weather forecast, partly cloudy today, temperatures in the 40s. Tonight, some rain, perhaps a light accumulation of snow in western Mass tonight. One to three inches possible in some areas west of Worcester tonight. Temperatures in the 30s. Tomorrow, rain and some precipitation linger in the morning. After that, it's partly cloudy and highs tomorrow getting up around 50 degrees. Sunny on Thursday with temperatures in the 40s. It is 35 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. President Biden is meeting with world leaders today at the G20 summit in Indonesia to discuss concerns about rising food and energy prices caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. The White House says G20 leaders, at least most of them, will come together at the end of the summit to condemn Moscow's actions. NPR's Franco Ordonez is covering the president's trip to Asia. Franco, the president has spoken at the U.N. Climate Summit in Egypt, addressed leaders at the Association of Southeast Asian Nations in Cambodia, and met yesterday with Chinese President Xi Jinping. What are his objectives at this next stage at the G20? Well, a calling out Russia is a big part. Leaders of the G20 are working, as you noted, a statement that, according to a senior administration official, will condemn Russia in, quote, the strongest possible terms. The official says that Russia's war is the root cause of, quote, immense economic and humanitarian suffering in the world. And I will note that not all the G20 nations are going to sign on, but the official says that most will. He would not say which countries are not joining. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, also weighed in at the conference by a video address, pressing leaders to continue to isolate Russia. He asked for their help ending the war and also ensuring that Ukrainian grain exports continue to get safe passage to hungry nations. And he referred to the group as the G-19, which was a clear reference to exclude Russia. Another big theme is countering China. All right, so let's get into that for a second, because China has made some pretty big inroads in Southeast Asia, as well as uh, other developing parts of the world. How's the West responding to that? Biden is co-hosting an event with the Indonesian president, Joko Widodo, as well as Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission. 
The event is part of an initiative to raise $600 billion over the next five years to counter China's growing influence through funding of big infrastructure projects around the world. Biden announced billions in new investments, including $20 billion in financing for Indonesia to reduce emissions and expand clean energy projects, as well as $15 million to support India's health care system. I want to emphasize the word investments, investments that are driven by local needs, development with our partners, and delivering real results to improve the lives of all of our people. China has long been willing to provide fast cash to developing nations in ways that the United States has not. And when Biden and Xi met yesterday to discuss lowering tensions in the relationship, Biden told Xi that the United States was ready to compete vigorously. Frager, what else will have your attention at the G20? Well, Biden is also set to sit down with the new British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The two spoke by phone last month, but this will be their first face-to-face -face meeting since he was named prime minister. It's obviously a critical relationship, and both leaders have signaled they want to keep it that way. I'll also be watching to see if G20 leaders remain healthy. Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen announced that he tested positive for COVID after hosting more than a dozen leaders at the ASEAN meetings, including Biden. And Biden yesterday said he had a cold, but the White House told reporters this morning that the president tested negative for the virus and was not considered a close contact, as defined by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's NPR's Franco Ordonez in Indonesia. Franco, thanks. Hey, thanks, A. Every election denier that tried to become a top election official in a battleground state lost in this year's midterm elections. They include Jim Marchant, a Nevada Republican who falsely claims that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. He organized a coalition of secretary of state candidates across the country, pledging that if they won, Donald Trump would again be president in 2024. But Marchant lost to Democratic attorney Cisco Aguilar, who joins us now. Uh, so you're uh, going to be Nevada's next secretary of state. Uh, what was at stake in this race for you? Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. There was a lot at stake, especially when you talk about voter confidence. As you mentioned, my opponent wanted to disenfranchise a large group of Nevada voters by taking away some of our early access, taking away mail ballots, and going back to a single Tuesday in November for everyone to vote across our great state. And one, I'm honored to serve in this position. I'm glad the voters believed in my vision. But also, two, delivering a big blow to the leader of the America First Coalition who wanted to deny a large group of Americans from having a voice in the future of our democracy. Here's the thing, though. You won the election, but your opponent still had 465,000 votes. That means 465,000 people at least knew what he was about and still cast their vote for him. So what's your message to them? Well, I'm not sure that they knew who he was or what he represented because throughout the entire election, he hid. He was never present. He never agreed to a debate. He never agreed to be on a panel. And so I don't think the voters really knew who he was, what he had going for him was the power of the R next to his name. I just noticed a tweet from uh, former President Barack Obama who, uh, who wrote, let's celebrate Democratic candidates like Cisco for Nevada, that's you, who will be Nevada's next Secretary of State. His opponents spread conspiracy theories and lies about voting machines. Cisco will protect the integrity of Nevada's election. So for, for those who don't know, what does a Secretary of State of a state do? <laughs> it's different from state to state, but in Nevada, there are actually eight divisions within the Secretary of State's office. The two most important, one are elections. You are a regulator of elections. You are supposed to ensure that the 17 counties are doing what they need to do to make our elections lawful, secure, and transparent. 
The other division that's really important is every business in Nevada has to file with the Secretary of State's office. And so you have to have an understanding of what our business environment is and realize what we need to do in this office to make it easier for business to do what they do. Did your job get tougher with Joe Lombardo, who was backed by Donald Trump, becoming the governor? No, not at all. I believe Joe Lombardo has the priority of all Nevadans at heart, and he will do the best job to protect that interest. So as Secretary of State then of Nevada, how much will you focus on targeting election-denying efforts anywhere in the state? Well, obviously, they're going to be continue to put information into our state. Nevada is going to determine who the next president of the United States is in 2024. So it's going to be a hot topic. It's going to be a discussion. However, I have to be out front and center in it. I have to build trust with our electorate throughout the state and get them to understand that sometimes information being given to us is not always accurate. You had a, a tough uh, win this time around. Uh, Senator Catherine Cortez Masta was locked in a battle with Adam Laxalt. And just looking at the last few presidential elections, Democrats uh, are winning over Nevadans, but the margins are getting smaller and smaller every single year. What is going on, do you think, with the Democratic Party in Nevada? I don't think it's a issue of the Democratic Party. It's just Nevada is a deep purple state. We've had success as Democratic candidates in the last election cycles, but there's been challenges. There are issues that Nevadans care about that we need to get better at addressing and understanding and finding solutions. Democrats this cycle had a vision. They had a solution to some of those issues. And really look at this from a long-term perspective. We're going to have to fight to continue to get Nevadans to believe in our vision. You know, hearing election officials across the country reporting being threatened because of their work. Um, how do you plan to protect election workers and volunteers in Nevada once you begin your term? Absolutely. And that's been a big priority of my campaign. We recognize from the very beginning that we can't continue to have secure elections, fair elections, accessible elections without the human component. The human component is so critical to the success of our elections, and we have to continue to ensure to protect them. They have to feel comfortable. They shouldn't feel threatened. They shouldn't feel intimidated by doing the job they're doing to put food on their table. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to have their back. We're going to introduce legislation this upcoming legislative cycle to make it a felony to harass any election worker or volunteer. That is Cisco Aguilar, Nevada's next Secretary of State. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. There was a spectacular meltdown in the world of cryptocurrencies last week. One of the world's largest crypto exchanges, FTX, filed for bankruptcy on Friday. That sparked fears of contagion throughout the wider industry, which was recently trading at around $1 trillion. Darian Woods from NPR's podcast, The Indicator, is here with us to explain how the crash of the industry that calls itself decentralized finance has led some influential players to reconsider. Hi, Darian. Good morning. Good morning. So explain, what led to the bankruptcy of FTX? FTX is an exchange. So it's like a stock exchange, but for crypto. And it matches buyers and sellers. And it takes a, and it takes a clip of the ticket along the way. And there is a separate sister company here. It's called Alameda Research. So this one borrows and invests. And it does more speculative deals. It's, it's a bit more of a risky company. Mm. And in the normal financial world, these two companies should be separate. And this is where FTX got into trouble. It used assets from its exchange company, including from everyday customer funds that it said it would not use to lend out like this. And it would fund bad bets for, for Alameda. So we're talking 10 
billion dollars here that was reported by Reuters and Wall Street Journal. Mm. And when this got revealed, FTX suffered what was essentially like a huge bank run early last week, meaning they had to declare bankruptcy by Friday. So was FTX a bad company or was this more like a, a panicked bank run bringing an otherwise legitimate company under? FTX is now under investigations all over the world, okay. and it, it's clear if it was a regular exchange, like a stock exchange, it wouldn't have been allowed to put everyday users' money into such risky, speculative bets that Alameda Research was doing. And so we'll find out in coming months the exact extent to which the underlying business model was rotten. But what's clear is that other big crypto investors took a look at FTX's books early last week and said, no thanks. This suggests that there are real problems with FTX's business model. And what about the wider world of crypto? How is that responding? So Bitcoin, the, the biggest cryptocurrency, saw about a 25% drop from the start of last week to its lowest point in the middle of the week. And, of course, everyday crypto investors who bought crypto using FTX are very angry. But the people at the top of the crypto industry are trying to work out ways to calm the markets. Changpeng Zhao, also known as CZ, he runs the biggest crypto exchange called Binance. And on Monday, he tweeted, To reduce further cascading negative effects of FTX, Binance is forming an industry recovery fund to help projects who are otherwise strong but in a liquidity crisis. Sounds like a central bank to me. Yeah, so that's almost like a central bankish type of thing. So it's kind of ironic because this whole industry prides itself on being decentralized finance. Um, but this is some kind of centralized entity to keep the system afloat. Darian Woods from the NPR podcast, The Indicator. Thanks. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Brazil's incoming president is pledging a zero-tolerance policy on deforestation in the Amazon, but some climate scientists say it's too late. It's 21 minutes past 8. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. In our forecast, clouds today, temperatures in the 40s, some rain tonight, maybe snow in western mass, lows in the 30s, 35 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Netflix presenting Is That Black Enough For You? From writer and director Elvis Mitchell comes a love letter to black cinema of the 70s, celebrating the films and talent that changed the game. Now streaming on Netflix. And from San Jose State University, with more than 100 graduate programs providing creativity and talent to the Silicon Valley and beyond. More at sjsu.edu slash graduate programs. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events, 
to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Brazil's new president-elect, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, is at the COP27 climate summit in Egypt. He's renewing calls to crack down on deforestation in the Amazon, and climate scientists are encouraged. NPR's Kirk Sigler traveled to a remote Amazonian research station that is also threatened by illegal logging. The Amazon rainforest is the most biodiverse ecosystem on our planet. From high atop a weather station at dawn, the lush green canopy looks endless. The birds and howler monkeys are waking up. They sound like the wind. You could almost overlay the entire lower 48 states into the Amazon. It's huge and can feel lawless. Under right-wing Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, illegal logging to clear fields for cattle is rising at record levels. Uh, we're happy to declare when they cross. Scientists at a research camp deep in the jungle are studying how this deforestation is accelerating global climate change. Getting there is a six-hour bone-busting ride in 4x4s from the Amazonas capital of Manaus. You can feel every bump in the backseat of this pickup. Sounds of chainsaws and machetes, not from loggers, but our drivers. A storm brought massive wind toppling trees and huge rain all at once, which is unusual. So is what preceded it. Even this year, we're experiencing a extreme drought. And there are whole areas of the Amazon right now that are completely dry and communities that are completely isolated. This is Hita Mesquita, a Brazilian government scientist and our guide at Camp 41. She's dedicated her life's work to protecting the rainforest. The Amazon is an important carbon sink. All this jungle soaks up those harmful CO2 gases that are making the planet warm. As more of it gets chopped down, that leads to more extreme weather elsewhere, like the fires in the American West and drought back here. In this particular area where we are, we are right now in the middle of this huge dispute if the forest is going to fall for cattle ranching or not. Because amazingly, even though we have been here, for 43 years straight, people still have not gotten the message. But scientists like Mesquita see last month's presidential election in Brazil as a possible turning point. I'm very hopeful that we're going to see change and that this change is going to be positive for the Amazon. But at the same time, I still think that we lack a concrete plan for the Amazon. You hear this a lot. Until rich Western countries recognize that extreme poverty is not okay, the illegal logging and other development will continue no matter who's president. People are desperate for work. This was the case until recently in an indigenous village a day's boat ride from Manaus along the Rio Negro River, where there are signs of change. A collection of brightly painted buildings and huts sits atop a steep riverbank. Roberto Brito Mendoza says he's a fourth-generation logger, but lately realized that what's going on in these forests is a direct threat to his people's survival. <laughs> My grandparents knew basically everything about the seasons, he says. Today, we can't predict anything. Summers are 10 degrees hotter, it's smoky, droughts come every couple years instead of every 30. 
Então foi um resultado positivo que vai. With the help of an NGO, Mendoza stopped logging and is transforming this village into an ecotourism destination. The jungle surrounding it is now protected as a sustainable forest reserve, allowing for some small-scale logging and farming. Locals sell artisan products. Julia Freitas with the Foundation for Amazon Sustainability wants to replicate this model across the Amazon. We believe that we cannot attack the deforestation problem if we don't give the people that live in the forest the possibility of living with a high quality of life. And there's hope that incoming president Luis Inacio Lula da Silva will be more friendly toward indigenous rights. He's also expected to restore funding for environmental agencies that were gutted under Bolsonaro. A string of murders of Brazilian environmental enforcers in this jungle drew international headlines. At a reception in Manaus, I meet Carlos Travassos, who's taking over for one of the men recently killed. I've been working to protect isolated indigenous people for 14 years. It's always been risky, he says. Criminals felt emboldened under Bolsonaro, and enforcers like Travassos are still way outnumbered, but he won't give up. Soon, he promises, there will be an army of forest guardians fighting to save the Amazon. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Manaus, Brazil. Former First Lady Michelle Obama is opening up in a new memoir. She writes about her daughter's dating, the ebb and flow of her marriage, and a phrase she didn't know would resonate. When they go low, we go high. Michelle Obama declared those now famous words at the 2016 Democratic National Convention. And in a new interview, All Things Considered host Juana Summers asked the former First Lady what going high means to her. Going high doesn't mean sitting on the side of the road and watching injustice go by. Going high is about having a real concrete strategy for change. It's taking the rage and turning it into reason. You know, I used to play this game with my communication staff before an interview where we would sort of walk through the questions and there'd be some question that would be what I'd call a knucklehead question. And I'd practice my gut response because sometimes just playing it out loud helps to get it out. But then when you put your your first gut reaction out there and then you look at it for a minute and you go, uh, well, that's not even how I really feel. And what's going to be the outcome? If I start with my rage and anger, all I will do is play out my rage and anger, but I won't be able to affect any change. Going high is about the ultimate goal of where are we trying to go and what's the best way to get there. Hear more of the former First Lady's interview with Juana about her new book, The Light We Carry, Overcoming in Uncertain Times, later today on All Things Considered. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, we talk about population trends after reports show that for the first time, the number of people on Earth reached 8 billion. Also, some good news for air travelers. Federal officials are forcing some airlines to refund customers for canceled flights over the past few years. And this note now, coming to City Space tomorrow... Iodeli Cassell, the award-winning tap dancer and choreographer of the Funny Girl revival on Broadway. Tickets are at wbur.org events. It's 8.30. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the British International School of Boston, thinking beyond traditional education, collaborating with MIT and Juilliard. Open house on Sunday. Register at bisboston.org. And the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org slash wbur. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Republicans are now one seat shy of retaking control of the House. The GOP has secured 217 seats thus far, with 13 contests still undecided. Democrats will maintain control of the Senate come January. Later today in Florida, former President Donald Trump may announce he's running for the White House again in 2024. Trump is expected to make an announcement in Palm Beach. Democrat Katie Hobbs will be Arizona's next governor. Ben Giles with member station KJZZ says Hobbs was declared the winner of the state's gubernatorial election last night over Republican Kerry Lake nearly a week after Election Day. Hobbs ran a quiet campaign compared to Lake, a former local news anchor with a knack for producing juicy sound bites and antagonizing the media. But voters rejected Lake's Trump-like messaging, including her routine denial of the 2020 election results. Election integrity was a key issue for Hobbs, who made a name for herself defending Arizona's elections as Secretary of State. Hobbs becomes the first Democrat elected governor in Arizona since 2006. For NPR News, I'm Ben Giles in Phoenix. Amazon reportedly plans to lay off about 10,000 employees in corporate and technology positions. That's according to the New York Times. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Opening statements were heard yesterday in the manslaughter trial of a Reading police officer. Officer Eric Drowski is the first officer to face charges in an on-duty killing in Massachusetts in decades. He's accused of shooting 43-year-old Alan Greeno in 2018 after police responded to a domestic dispute. Prosecutors say Drowski acted recklessly and Greeno was not armed. Drowski's attorneys say Greeno refused to comply with police and Drowski responded appropriately. Local indigenous peoples are working to advance efforts toward cultural revitalization and bridging gaps between the Nipmuc and the Massachusetts tribes. One way they did so was at a gathering this month to learn a new yet ancient skill. WBUR's Christella Guerra reports. On the banks of the Mystic River in Charlestown, Andre Strong Bearheart of the Nipmuc taught five apprentices the art of using fire to build a traditional dugout canoe, called a machine. And so we need to braid our communities back together in this very way that we're doing right now, today. We need to braid our language and our ceremonies and our walks stronger, braid them tighter back together. Joining them through the week are other local tribes such as the Aquina, Chappaquiddick, and Mashpee Wampanoag. It's also the first official tribal alliance of its kind in centuries. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. The Boston Athenaeum reopens today after a 16-month renovation project. Director Leah Raskowski says the renovation will allow for more programming and a chance for the site to display more of its art collection. We've really used this as an opportunity to bring forward parts of our collection that we have not shown as much as I think we would have hoped. We've been able to bring forward more of the work by women, 
more of the work by artists of color. The expansion includes a new children's library, a sitting room, and a street-level cafe. The time is 8.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. In sports, Celtics beat the Oklahoma City Thunder last night 126-122. to The team plays Atlanta on the road tomorrow. In our forecast, cloudy today, temperatures in the 40s. Tonight, some rain likely, some light snow in western Massachusetts tonight. One to three inches possible in some areas. Temperatures in the 30s tonight. Tomorrow, lingering precipitation in the morning. Clouds in the afternoon. Highs tomorrow getting up around 50 degrees. It is 35 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington. Good morning. There are now 8 billion people living on planet Earth. It's a milestone that came pretty quickly. The world added 7 billion people in just over 200 years. And while we continue to grow... The Earth does not. So should we be alarmed about so many people using the world's finite resources, especially amid climate change? Joining us to unpack this is Jack Goldstone. He's a professor of public policy at George Mason University, and he writes about global population trends. Good morning. Thanks for being on the program. Good morning. Glad to be here. Okay, so let's start with that big question. Should we be alarmed? Eight billion people. Is that too many people living on this planet? It's really not. We've handled... 8 billion, I think we can still manage at 9 billion or even 10 billion. It's all a matter of paying attention to what people are doing, how they live, and which specific areas and groups are growing the fastest. The the fact that global population is 8 billion and is going to be 9 or 10 billion, that's not the critical issue. It's the fact that the United States, for example, is half again larger than Nigeria today, but in 100 years, Nigeria will be half again larger than the United States. Okay. So how do we manage that imbalance? Do we have to prepare for uh, increases in immigration or will Nigeria be so prosperous that it can employ all of its own people? Well, let's... I think what's important about the 8 billion is that we're going to be connected. And so we have to get used to the idea that what happens in other places will directly affect our quality of life here. Well, let's talk about that, because there are the birth rates are actually down across much of the world. So if you could just break down what parts of the world account for all of this population growth or much of this population growth. Of course. Well, places like India and China, which are the largest countries in the world today, have pretty much stopped growing. In fact, China's population will likely decline a little bit in the next 30 years and then a lot more uh, between 2050 and 2100. The growth is taking place mainly in Africa. Mm -hmm. A few countries in Asia like Pakistan are also growing fast, but it's really 
Africa right now, we think will grow from today's 1.4 billion to two and a half billion in 30 years and 4 billion by the end of the century. Um, <clears throat> that's the real driver of growth. Now, some people say is that something to worry about. Well, if that African population is productive, if they're on a low fossil fuel energy trajectory, then that's great because without that population becoming productive, the world will struggle to find economic growth. Other countries don't have growing populations. But if that African population is on a high fossil fuel growth path and remains relatively poor, then the world as a whole will face great difficulties. Uh, we, we won't be able to compensate for the growth in population plus a high fossil fuel trajectory. So what? So that's a big problem. So what do world leaders need to do to make this sustainable? Because you talk about how there are actually enough resources, but right now there are famines in places like Somalia, for example. So what do world leaders need to do to make sure that with these billions of people on the planet, everybody has access to food and the resources on this planet? Well, there will be more famines if climate change is not slowed. Yeah. And so the big issue is helping countries that are going to face a lot of growth in energy in the future get on a fossil fuel path that is cleaner. The same thing is true for the countries that are big fossil burners now, the U.S., India, China. They also need to get on a clean path as soon as possible, which is to everyone's advantage, because in the long run, solar and wind are cheaper than the way we make energy now. But the sooner we can get into that clean, lower cost future, the better for the world. The other thing I should point out is that just because population is not growing very fast in Europe or the US or China, that doesn't mean that population issues don't exist there. What's growing fast is the over 65 population. Right. In fact, it's growing much faster than the world population as a whole. So we also need to develop policies to keep over 65 um, our elder populations, which include folks like me, keep us productive, keep us contributing to the economy. Jack Goldstone is a professor of public policy at George Mason University. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. The Department of Transportation is cracking down on airlines that refuse to give customers refunds for canceled flights. Six airlines are facing millions of dollars in fines, and they're being ordered to pay $600 million in refunds. But as NPR's David Shaper reports, only one of the airlines is a U.S. carrier raising the ire of some consumer advocates. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says five foreign-based carriers in Denver-based Frontier have been ordered to pay hundreds of thousands of customers the refunds that they're owed for canceled flights. The bottom line is that as people get ready to fly this holiday season, I want passengers to know that the U.S. DOT has their back. Buttigieg says when a flight gets canceled for any reason, federal rules require the airline to give would-be travelers refunds. But many airlines only offer travel credits or vouchers, some of which expire quickly. Our overall objective is to make sure passengers get their money back. And so, uh, you know, we, we know that uh, uh, these uh, enforcement actions have contributed to that happening in the case of these uh, six airlines and the you know, hundreds of millions of dollars going back to passengers. Airlines' refusal to give passengers refunds for flights they canceled became a huge source of consumer complaints, especially during the early days of the pandemic when almost no one was flying. Airlines are also required to give refunds when they significantly change flight times by several hours or add on layovers. 
That's been happening more this year when several airlines had operational meltdowns, forcing them to cancel and change tens of thousands of flights. It's really unprecedented. We've never seen anything like it. Bill McGee is an aviation consumer advocate with the American Economic Liberties Project, and he isn't too enthused by the DOT's enforcement action. Today's announcement, uh, I, I'm sorry to say, while it's, it's good news and it, and it seems to be moving in the right direction, it's really too little and too late. McGee says while Frontier is the only U.S. airline being penalized, consumers have complained about being denied refunds by just about every airline most notably United, as well as American and Delta. The fact is, the biggest offenders here don't seem to be addressed. Judge says other airlines are still under investigation for denying refunds, but none of them are U.S. airlines. He suggests that just knowing the DOT was considering stiff fines got several airlines to pay up. David Shaper, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, a biracial man considers his identity and his son's. In our forecast, cloudy today. Temperatures in the 40s. Rain tonight with lows in the 30s. In western Mass, there could be some snow tonight, one to three inches possible in some areas. Tomorrow, lingering precipitation in the morning, clouds in the afternoon. Highs getting up around 50 degrees tomorrow and sunshine on Thursday with temperatures in the 40s. It's 35 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, where portfolio managers, research analysts, and traders work together to help clients reach their financial goals. Learn more at LoomisSales.com. And an unlikely story bookstore and cafe with celebrity and royal biographer Andrew Morton and his new book, The Queen, November 19th, and UnlikelyStory.com. In business news, UMass Memorial Medical Center in Worcester is adding more inpatient beds. It would bring the number of beds there to more than 800. The hospital tells the Worcester Business Journal it wants to decrease congestion and improve efficiency in its emergency department. NPR Chief News Executive Nancy Barnes is set to become the next editor of the Boston Globe. Barnes will succeed Brian McGrory and will be the Globe's 13th editor in 150. 50 years. She'll also be the first woman to serve in that role. The time is 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. In 2015, the president of the NAACP chapter in Spokane, Washington, resigned amid a controversy over her racial identity. Rachel Dolezal presented herself as a black woman despite being born to white parents. 
Her story became the subject of numerous commentaries, including one by novelist John Vircher. Being half white, half black, he says people have often questioned his blackness, and Vircher worried that his youngest son, who looks white, might face similar questions about his identity and heritage. It's hard to reconcile feeling like, oh, God, you know, like, they're going to be safe, but, like, it comes at the expense of maybe not fully realizing his culture and getting to embrace it in the same way. As we mark the 10th anniversary of WBUR's Ideas and Opinions page, we bring you John Vircher's essay, first published in 2017. I used to make fun of my pop's afro. I remember the way he trimmed it in the bathroom mirror, the way he styled and shaped it to geometric perfection. I didn't know it at the time, but I envied that hair. I still do. I'm a biracial black man. Pops loose curls plus my mother's arrow straight locks left me with a shock of hair more Prince than Angela Davis, skin more Dwayne Johnson than Wesley Snipes. So I heard the question as early as grade school. What are you exactly? The question dogged me through high school, followed me to college, nipped at my heels through adulthood, until I shaved my thinning hair. My wife is white, so my sons have inherited the same dilution of skin and hair I got from my parents. My youngest is blonde. He looks white. I'm raising my sons as my father raised me to be proud of their blackness. My wife and I stock their shelves with children's books by authors and with characters of color. But I worry my sons will be confronted with that same question. What are you? And when they answer as they've been taught, will they be doubted? I experienced that disbelief. No way was I mixed with black. I didn't dress right. I didn't talk right. As a child, you want to belong more than anything. The constant disbelief and invalidation of your identity wears you down to the point you almost begin to question it yourself. It saps you of the courage to stand up to racism when it's spoken in your presence because you don't want to be alone anymore. I won't have that for my sons. Those who cling to the fallacy of post-racial America are sure to tell me that times are different. Race is a social construct. It doesn't matter what color my sons are as long as they are good people. But it matters what color they are. In many ways, my sons will benefit from their lighter skin and hair. It may spare them pain, and I'm grateful for that. But I also hate that this divergence from their blackness brings me some sense of relief. Pop still wears that afro. A little grayer, a little less full, no less proud. Once, my older son asked to touch his grandfather's hair. It was a moment of pure innocence, but it carried a weight that rang of that very privilege that I both dread and hope for. It came from a child's curiosity, and that made me smile. But on the inside, I cringed. While my father laughed it off and acquiesced, I know he felt it too, along with something else. We still have work to do. Author John Vircher's latest novel is titled After the Lights Go Out. He's also a contributor to WBUR's Ideas and Opinions page.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us later today for Here and Now. And Lisa Mullins joins me in the studio right now to give us a preview of what's coming up on today's show. Good morning. Good morning, Deb. Uh, There is, of course, a lot of news happening with the House of Representatives and who is going to be controlling it. It looks like Republicans will have control. At least that's the appearance right now. And there's going to be a vote on the leadership of the House. Kevin McCarthy, of course, at the center. And we'll be following along on whether or not he will carry the day. Uh, for fans of The Handmaid's Tale, I don't mm. know if you're one. Of, yes, oh, yeah. I can tell you are. <laughs> um, you'll know the uh, the actor Yvonne Strahovski, who plays a villain in the show. She owns Serena. A, a handmaid <laughs> and stole her child. We will be speaking with her about the series, uh, season five that just ended, and hearing what she thinks about the parallels between life in Gilead, the society that treats women as property of the state, um, a place that's that's facing environmental disasters, and life in the U.S. today. This is the series, of course, based on the dystopian Margaret Atwood novel. Um, And we're going to be having a conversation with journalist Lauren Ober, who opens up about her experience with getting diagnosed as autistic at the age of 42. The podcast is really fascinating. It's called The Loudest Girl in the World, which she's not, um, but um, it's a a really wonderful listen, as is the interview itself. She's she's fascinating. She brings you into her world, tells you what's happening and, um, and why she does the things she does and says the things she says. All right. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thank you. That's here and now, noon today, here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Joy Street Artists Association. Be inspired by the work of over 65 artists at Brick Bottom and Joy Street Open Studios this Saturday and Sunday. Brickbottom.org slash events. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston. Boston, known for all kinds of things, history, sports, that one bar where everybody knows your name. But nightlife? That's near the bottom. City officials want to change that. Building up Boston's economy after dark. Ready to go out? That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Google's being fined for knowing where to find you. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine, where that perfect holiday bottle of Cabernet, bourbon, or sparkling wine can be found. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. And by Hangry, a new memoir by Grubhub founder Mike Evans about the journey of creating a multi-billion dollar startup from scratch. Hangry is available as audio, ebook, and in local bookstores. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Google has agreed to pay nearly $400 million to settle a lawsuit over how it collects location information from users, everything from where you go on Google Maps to where you are when you do web searches. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. Forty state attorneys general began probing Google's location data gathering after a 2018 Associated Press story. It said Google was still collecting location information even when some users turned off an account setting called location history. That's because another setting called web and app activity was still on by default. And it continued to collect location data from everything from Google Maps to weather updates on Android phones. In settling the probe, Google has agreed to make certain changes, such as providing more information to users about what it means to turn a location-related account setting on or off. 
In a blog post, Google said it has already made a number of data privacy-related changes and that the lawsuit was based on outdated product policies. It also said it will provide users more data controls in the coming months. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. And now to southern China, where crowds of angry residents have broken out of a COVID lockdown and clashed with police. It's one of the most violent responses so far to the country's strict zero COVID policy. The BBC's Stephen McDonald reports from Beijing. Crowds of workers in Guangzhou's lockdown Haiju district have defied stay-at-home orders and marched through the streets, smashing COVID barriers and at one point turning over a police vehicle. They're mainly itinerant labourers who've come from other parts of China to find jobs in the city. They say that anti-COVID measures have kept them at home for weeks and they can't afford not to be paid. There have also been complaints of food shortages and skyrocketing prices. Riot police have been sent in to control the situation. The latest official factory output and retail sales figures reflect the crushing economic impact of the pandemic and the government's policy responses to it. Last Friday, officials here announced a series of minor changes which have softened some measures, sparking hope that more easing could be planned. However, the strict zero-COVID approach is currently increasing tensions right across the country. I'm the BBC's Stephen McDonnell for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. They are up. Dow, the Dow future is up one and two tenths percent. That's 398 points. S&P futures up almost two percent. NASDAQ futures up almost three percent. The 10-year Treasury yield is at 3.803 percent. The producer price index, that's wholesale prices, that's up two tenths of a percent in October from the month before. That's less than expected. That may be the source of that market optimism. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business is dedicated to simplifying the process of buying supplies. And by Fidelity Investments, introducing Fidelity Income Planning. Build a plan for income that lasts. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. The world's population hit 8 billion today, just as representatives from 190 or so countries continue week two of the UN Climate Change Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres had a pretty stark warning at the open, cooperate or perish. One focus of the summit, which is known as COP27, has been how to help lower income countries deal with climate disasters. Vijay Vaithiswaran attended the meeting last week, and he is the Economist Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor. He's here to fill us in. Good morning. Hello there. So I guess first, really, we should talk about the state of climate change as it is now. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said, we're on a climate highway to hell. CO2 levels are now 50% higher than they were before the Industrial Revolution. How bad is all that? The climate change picture is getting worse. We know we have some of the hottest years on record recently, confirmed yet again, and we're blowing past the goal that was set by the United Nations Paris Accord to try to contain the warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's a, a bit of a magic number to try to minimize the harm that's done to the earth from various forms of climate impacts. Uh, so that's not good news. On the flip side, actually, we'll see probably not as bad on the upside the pace of deployment of clean energy, particularly around the world, has been quite fast in the last 10 years. We're actually seeing something like the International Energy Agency say they think fossil fuels will peak by 2030, coal, oil, and gas. 
Well, I mean, that said, lower income countries do want and need some assistance, either reducing their own emissions or coping with the consequences of climate change. Are they going to get it? They are going to get more help. Some of this will come through the old fashioned way that is official donor aid bilaterally from countries like Britain and the United States as well has increased its uh, funding for adaptation and for other sorts of ways of helping developing countries cope with these problems. There's also philanthropic money, the Rockefeller and Gates foundations announced big initiatives, you know, measuring in the billions of dollars, we are seeing uh, forms of assistance. Now they're nowhere near the scale of the tragedy that's going to come, but it, we've got the marker down for scaling up these sorts of fiddly on the ground ways to help that I think actually make a big difference. Well, what ultimately do you think is gonna come out of this summit? So these UN summits are talking shops, right? They happen every year. And this one is a little cop, they call it. Every five years, they have a big cop. Last year in Glasgow was a very big COP. And so the expectations have to be in the right place. There's no major breakthrough that's anticipated. It's not even on the cards. On climate financing, though, I think there's a lot of action that's happening informally through coalitions of the willing. We see even as the world leaders shift to Indonesia for a G20 summit, in a sense, geopolitics is entering the fray. We've seen President Biden meet with Xi Jinping uh, for the first time, very important for geopolitics, but it's also very important for climate because these two giant emitters have to work together. So I think at that kind of fiddly bilateral bottom-up level, I think we're going to see progress come out of this COP, but it's not going to be a big announcement like the Paris Accord or another agenda setting kind of outcome. Vijay Vaithiswaran is the Economist Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor. He attended COP27 last week. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Our producers are Meredith Gerritsen-Morby, Ariana Rosas, Stephen Ryan, Alex Schroeder, Erica Soderstrom, and Jared Dang. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. In our weather forecast, cloudy today. Temperatures in the 40s. Tonight, a chance of rain around Boston. There could be some snow in western Massachusetts tonight, one to three inches in some spots. Temperatures in the 30s. And tomorrow, precipitation in the morning, clouds in the afternoon, and highs near 50 degrees. It is 35 degrees in Boston at 9 o'clock. Stay with us. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, &H, the Handel and Haydn Society, presenting The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's greatest comedy, Thursday and Friday at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.